Two and a Half Admins, episode 167. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. Before we get started, you've got a plug, Alan. Unlocking infrastructure sovereignty. Harnessing the power of open source solutions for business flexibility and cost effectiveness. Yeah, excuse the overly long title. But yeah, in this article, I talk a bit about the emergence of software as a service and the kind of vendor lock-in that comes with. The advantages to choosing open source solutions, especially around infrastructure. The flexibility and support you can get from open source solutions. You know, the fact that you're not stuck with just the person who made the software to get support. The ability you can build custom appliances and dealing with the compliance costs of that and how to move away from vendor lock-in and just the freedom you get from open source infrastructure. And we also talk about the amount of money you can save in certain cases with hosted infrastructure, uh, with owned infrastructure as opposed to the cloud. Right, well, link in the show notes as usual. I was reading an article that was pretty down on AI generally recently, and that linked to an older article from April of 2023, which I found really, really interesting. The secret water footprint of AI technology. Now, I was very aware of the carbon footprint of AI and data centers generally, but I didn't realize that there was massive amounts of fresh water, drinkable water, being used by data centers. This seems like a problem that should get a lot more light shone on it to me. One of the data centers I used to use, or be in, was built out of an old trucking warehouse specifically because it used to, it had an on-site well. So they would pump the cold water out of the ground, circulate around the building to cool the equipment, or basically cool air and then blow it across the equipment, and then you know dump it back into the well. And being in Canada, it meant that they only had to run the chiller appliance to cool that water that came out of the ground during the summer. The rest of the year, it was cold enough out of the ground. But that was a closed system. It used a bunch of water, but the water didn't leave or get, it didn't disappear. It didn't go down a drain. It just went back into the well at the end. And so while it held on to some water, it didn't use the water or it had an amount of water that was in the system, but it wasn't taking that water away constantly. And I do wonder in these cases where they talk about, you know, 700,000 liters of clean fresh water to train GPT-3 in Microsoft's US data centers. But like, does Microsoft put that water down a drain when they're done and it, it goes to like a water treatment plant or do they just circulating that same amount of water over and over and over again? And so while it's capturing that water, it's not using that much water all the time, if you know what I mean. Well, doesn't quite a lot of it evaporate as part of the cooling process? Well, if it's in a closed system, like if it's inside a pipe, mm. like in a power plant, you cool it down, turn it back into water, and then run it through again. Yeah, but um, I don't know for certain, but I would assume that, yes, they're closed loop and they're recirc, but you only get so many cycles out of a given volume of water before you need fresh water again. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of what goes on in conditioning the the coolant in a closed loop system, remembering I used to be a reactor operator, mm-hmm. is uh, dumping enough chemicals in it that like you you're not going to be able to just pour it down the drain when you're done. Mm-hmm. So I very seriously doubt that Microsoft or anybody else running a data center wants to just run a complete open loop system and you know just it runs out of the tap and through the system once and into the drain. I don't think that's what they're doing or what they want to do, but I do rather strongly suspect they would opt for a closed system with frequent flushes rather than going the nuclear power plant route and putting all kinds of stuff in there that means that now that's your problem forever. Mm-hmm. Speaking of Microsoft, though, the, it's not news in the industry, you know, the, these water issues. 
That's one of the big potential benefits to a uh, prototype project of Microsoft's. I reported on a few years ago. Basically, uh, they designed modular underwater data centers. Mm. So it's uh, you know it's kind of an all-in-one. You buy the equivalent of like a, a shipping container packed full of pre-configured operational racks full of gear, and you just lower it underwater about a mile offshore. Uh, you need a relatively short cable run to get to it. It's incredibly well insulated from most, although obviously not all, you know, weather activities. And you get free cooling because it's effectively passive. Now, those did have, if I recall, closed loop internal systems. But, you know, the heat exchangers are just passive. You know, just fins outside that run through the seawater can dump far more heat than you're going to generate with, you know, whatever computing equipment you can pack into a shipping container. Yeah, I just, my immediate suspicion is, well, it says... Training GPT-3 in Microsoft's state-of-the-art data center can directly consume 700,000 liters of water per what unit of time. But also, to put it in perspective, apparently that's only enough to make 320 Teslas or 370 BMW cars. And I kind of feel like the value generated by GPT-3 training is, you know, this seems that it's actually using a lot less water per unit of value than 300 to 400 vehicles. I don't know, man. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure I'd agree with you that the value of chat GPT training is is actually greater than, I don't know, 50 or 60 Teslas. <laughs> yeah. The scales are kind of wobbling back and forth in my head on that one. Yeah, I mean, it's not just those industries. Most industries use a bunch of water, like the meat industry, for example. People always talk about the CO2 and the, the carbon footprint and everything, but the water usage is something that is going to become more and more important. Yeah, for sure. And there's multiple aspects to that. Like there's the water just dumped on the ground to grow the grain crops that the livestock eat. But there's also the problem of the effluent generated by the livestock going into water and contaminating existing freshwater, making it need to be clean before anybody can use it for anything again. Mm. So the water consumption there can be very high. I'm just curious for this Microsoft example of how much water over what unit of time would it actually take? I'd also like to point out for any of the folks out there that are thinking a little further ahead and scratching their heads over Alan's casual use of, you know, the the terms closed and open systems when it comes to environmental water. Well, it's all a closed system, right? Whatever you did with the water, it's going to go back to the environment. The whole environment is a closed system. And that is true. There is no such thing as using the water and it's completely gone. The issue is that in order to access fresh water, what we actually need to get is groundwater. It's relatively recent rain, and in most cases, it's been filtered through, you know, quite a lot of yards of uh, sand and rock, which further helps purify it by the time it gets down to the aquifers. But that part of the cycle only happens so quickly. And if we drain the aquifers faster than they can fill, then we have a major problem because, yes, we're returning the water to the environment, quote unquote, but not necessarily our part of it and not where we need it to be or in the condition that we need it. What about this idea of picking the time and place to do your AI training or just your data center work generally? And considering environmental factors and using the fact that we have the internet and data centers in various places around the world, rather than just having it all in a few massive data centers around DC, for example, maybe spread the load out. Part of the point here is in drought-ravaged regions like California that contain a lot of data centers, how much of that could be run somewhere else that's less water-constrained and 
doesn't even necessarily have to be that much further away as far as internet latency goes. There's also the the rather annoying problem that some locations which are ideal in one dimension are very much not ideal in another. Because, you know, when you talk mm-hmm. about these very arid desert locations, well, they're great locations for solar generation, which fixes a lot of your potential carbon issue. You know, if you're generating your own power because you brought in the panels with the data center and you're almost entirely self-sufficient, sweet. But <laughs> those places that get all that reliable, clean, high-intensity sunlight don't have the water that you need tons and tons and tons of for your data center. This is also a problem for CPU manufacturing, mm-hmm. which has a much more, no, they need fresh water and need it constantly. They really can't recycle for very long, if at all. Yeah, and for there's a, a data center here in Quebec that's built where a, an old aluminum smelting plant was, So because it, it has the kind of electricity connections it needs being literally on top of a, a dam and therefore getting all this hydroelectric power. And being in Canada, it means that for a good part of the year, they can just take cold air from outside and not have to run air conditioners on it (laughs) to keep the servers cold. But it does have other drawbacks and and everything's a trade-off. You know, the further north you go, the higher the latency is going to be for most of the population. And it also means it's much harder to get, you know, data center techs to actually finger poke the servers. See, being from America, when you started off that story and you talked about, you know, the the old smelting mill being right there by the dam, so it's got all this hydroelectric power, I, I kept waiting for you to say, and, you know, lake right there to dump the tailings into. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think to Joe's point, there's definitely some value in selecting where you run your workload. And I think over time, more of that will get priced into it. Like we already see with, for example, if you use the AWS for the cloud, certain regions are cheaper than other regions. And so if there was one that where, you know, water wasn't a scarce resource, or even like Jim was saying, if they built the ones out in the ocean underwater, it's like, if all you need is to run that one workload and it's going to work out of that container, then we can offer it to you at X cents per hour less. You can even use tidal power generation. Okay, this episode is sponsored by the Traceroute podcast. AI continues to be integrated into every facet of our lives, from digital photography to image and text generation and beyond. It's time for us all to start questioning, is AI our friend or our worst enemy? That's the focus of the two-part season opener of the award-winning Traceroute podcast. Don't miss out on this and other ways we can peel back the layers of the tech stack and reveal the humanity in the hardware. Start listening this week. In every episode of Traceroute, a team of technologists seeks to untangle the complex questions of who shapes the internet. Seasons 1 and 2 gave us a crucial understanding of the inner workings of technology while revealing the human element behind the tech. And Season 3 tackles not just AI questions, but also how can we use technology to preserve the Earth? Who influences the technology that gets made? What happened to the flying cars we were promised? AI is something I'm pretty skeptical about, so it'll be really interesting to hear what the experts on Traceroute have to say about it. So listen and follow the new season of Traceroute starting November 2nd on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Check out Traceroute now. China requires any new domestic Wi-Fi kit to support IPv6 and run it by default, says the register. Good on them. That's one of those deals that it seems clear at this point that the only way IPv6 adoption is going to happen is if some really big authoritarian entities force it to happen. The Internet Consortium is not a big authoritative entity that can really force that kind of thing. So I think this is kind of like the the same effect that we see 
Like, you know, in the United States, frequently you'll see a product that has excellent environmental specifications. And the reason that it does is because California said you have to fix your green issues on this class of device if you want to sell it in our state. And while my own thoroughly red state of South Carolina would absolutely not have any such requirement, the thing is, once you have decided you want California's business and you have started manufacturing your devices to that specification, it's cheaper to sell it to everybody that way than to have two separate lines and make the theoretically slightly cheaper line for the red states and the more expensive one for California and whatever other blue state might, you know, potentially summon up enough nards to require it. So in this case, we can hope that China is a large enough market that if everybody has to build properly supported IPv6 routers to get in the Chinese market, then that'll have really good implications for, you know, all of the rest of us. Yeah, and it doesn't quite fit in that U.S. cyber trust mark thing we talked about a couple months back. <laughs> I'd like to see more things like that. Of that, you know, it's kind of the same idea where we're going to enforce a minimum level of security on the device, and as, as well as you know, network functionality. Like it has to do IPv6. Yeah, and like we saw with the iPhones with USB C now, mm -hmm. because the EU basically forced them. I was just about to make the EU comparison. Like usually, we're looking to the EU to be the good guy on this kind of thing. But hey, if China wants to step up, I'm not going to complain. Probably a slight difference between the US or EU doing it and China doing it. Uh, the requirement goes into effect December 1st, 2023. <laughs> so like in a month and a half, not, you know, oh, in 2025 or something uh, like most of the other things that are coming. It probably also doesn't hurt that China is where the majority of these things are getting manufactured to begin with. So yeah. <laughs> that's that's really kind of an extra hit home. Like, you know, the the country where your factories all are is demanding that you build it this way. Adds a little extra stank. Yeah, although, especially for Wi-Fi gear, this is all going to be in the software, basically, the IPv6 support. It's not like the antenna needs to be different to support IPv6. That wasn't what I meant by that. I was just I saying know. that, you know, there, there are extra business implications to the country where your manufacturing capacity is saying you can't do that anymore. Yeah. Because now it's, it's not just, oh, we might lose access to the Chinese market for sales. It's we might lose access to building our devices with Chinese labor. So this is definitely a good thing then? In my opinion, yes. I mean, yeah. we've got to get transitioned to IPv6. It has not been happening the kind, gentle way where we just say, wouldn't it be great if everybody used IPv6? Every other major milestone towards IPv6 adoption to the degree we've had major milestones, has also occurred through some authoritative, this is how it's going to be. The biggest one that I can think of is when Google suddenly said, oh, you want to deliver email to anybody at a domain that we host? Well, you'd better have proper IPv6 quad A records and uh, you know a pointer pointing back to it for your mail server, or we're just going to drop that crap. And all of a sudden, <laughs> all over the world, people are scrambling to properly configure IPv6 on their mail servers. Yours truly included. Yeah, and I think part of it was China looked at the stats, according to APNIC, that runs, basically hands out the IP addresses for Asia Pacific, uh, said that 31.5% of Chinese internet users can access content over IPv6, whereas in India, it's 78%, and Malaysia is 68%. And so China set a goal back in April of 2023 saying they want to have 750 million users and 300 million Internet of Things devices using IPv6 by the end of 2023. 
really kind of puts it in perspective for us Americanskis when the Chinese government is saying, we want 700 million users by 2023. And we're thinking like, we'd have to have an awful lot of kids if we were going to do that. I'm not sure if these final stats are global or just China. I assume just China. Uh, They say 15% of fixed networks and 55% of mobile networks are expected to run over IPv6 by the end of this year. Do you think that adoption in India is gone so well because they just didn't get enough IPv4s then? Yes. I think partly that and partly there's such a large segment of people that maybe are mobile only, don't have fixed line internet. That is an excellent point. That is one of the biggest places you see end user IPv6 adoption right now is mobile devices because the mobile carriers have... uh, They've they've done the extra work to make sure they've got either IPv6 or carrier grade NAT or both. And the IPv6 is obviously a way better solution in the long run. Even in the United States, you know, when you hop on your phone and browse the internet, if you've got the tools to check it, you'll see that you're very frequently, you know, going to IPv6 sites and using your own native IPv6 address. Whereas at home, I mean, I could set up my LAN on IPv6 all I want, but my ISP isn't going to listen to me if I try to speak IPv6 directly to it. Yeah, and that's backed up even by the stats there. 15% of wired networks, but 55% of mobile networks have v6. It is interesting to think about how hardcore China really feels about that whole and it needs to be using IPv6 by default thing. Like, if they mean that the router won't work on an IPv4-only network without you specifically configuring it differently than it came out of the box, that's going to be a huge shock for an awful lot of consumers that suddenly discover, I mean, in China, it won't be a problem, I'm sure, because at this point, I I think uh, the implication here is the IPv6 is already available, you know, in the last mile, residential and everything else in China. But over here in America, like I said, you know, for the vast majority of the time, no, you're you're probably not going to have working IPv6 from your ISP, regardless of what your devices support. So if all of a sudden, you know, as of 2024, none of the consumer routers work out of the box without you actually going in and reconfiguring them to work with v4, that would certainly be a big kick in the pants for somebody, hopefully American ISPs, but you never know. But surely they must have to ship a different firmware just to have it be in English by default. And so it wouldn't be that difficult for them to change some of the defaults to make IPv4 default. Again, sort of depends on how hardcore the Chinese government is about this. Yeah, and also, like, I'm doubting that it's v6 only as the default. It's probably dual stacks as the default. And then, you know, maybe your ISP just doesn't offer any v4 and you're v6 only. But yeah, otherwise, I could see it being an interesting way to force ISPs to start having v6 because everybody's device doesn't work by default without it. Although... You know, especially over here in North America, most of the time your Wi-Fi device comes from your ISP and is remotely configured by them. They call it provisioning. You have to sit there and watch while they redo it if they change anything. And they'll be like, well, that's what you get for not using our device. It doesn't work with us. Or some scapegoaty thing they would do to get out of having a working network. This is why the smart move is to only use your ISP's gateway device as a modem, not as a router. Get your own router. (laughs) Have control of your own network. Let's do some feedback then. Exu asks, what do you think of Toshiba hard drives? I'm curious why they are so rarely mentioned. Just not a thing in most places, maybe? They're so rarely mentioned because they're not really marketed directly to consumers much at all. You're not going to see a Toshiba drive sitting on the shelves in a Best Buy 
And for that matter, like, unless you're really going digging hard, you're probably not going to see one on Amazon or Newegg or what have you either, unless you're specifically looking for one, because that's just not where Toshiba sells them. Now, if you crack open your OEM laptop or desktop PC and look at what hard drive is in it, your odds of finding a Toshiba are considerably better than they were when you were shopping as a consumer. They're still not great, but they're a lot better. It is possible to find the Toshibas on Amazon. I think it was uh, World Backup Day quite a few years ago when I got 50-something of their 8-terabyte drives because they were the best price per terabyte, and they've served me very well. But most of the time, I default to Seagate because that's just always been my preferred brand. Whereas I default to Seagate despite the fact that they have very much not always been my preferred brand, but in the last several years, they've earned it. Yeah. Yeah, or rather... Western Digital have dropped the ball. It's both. Western Digital has definitely, I don't know, been the dog turd to their golden nugget. But, uh, you know, it's not just that they didn't do as crappy a job as Western Digital did with several issues like, you know, the SMR fiasco. It's also that I found it very refreshing, you know, when I interviewed their their, uh, program manager about that and, you know, asked them about, you know, how would they handle it if and when they introduced SMR into NAS drives and just flat out said, we're not going to do that. It's not appropriate for purpose. We will not. That's not going to go in a NAS line. And I got confrontational. I said, you realize you're telling that, you know, to an Ars Technica reporter who will call you out the second you do something different. And he says, yes, publish me. I mean, dude, that is what I'm looking for. I don't know about y'all. Mm-hmm. And so I would say Toshiba is my second choice, definitely over Western Digital. And I've not really had any trouble with all the Toshiba drives I have now, which I've since bought some 12s and a bunch of other ones. I definitely have over 100 Toshiba drives spinning and not been unhappy with them at all. But like Jim said, they're just not usually the first option that pops up. They're kind of the also ran, but there are only three manufacturers of hard drives left now that Samsung doesn't do hard drives. So they're the third option. and really the second choice. They are harder for consumers to shop for, even if you technically have access to them, because they're not consumer branded. Essentially, all the Toshiba drives, the same caveats that I talk about when I advise people not to go buying enterprise drives, they're not going to do serious research, read the entire data sheet on every model they're considering. That applies to all the Toshiba drives, even the ones that go into retail devices, because there is no consumer branding. You can't just say, oh, I'm looking for the Iron Wolf line or I'm looking for, you know, yada, 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 and and know basically what you're getting. Nope. Everything is a Toshiba, you know, string of letters and numbers, and you're going to need to look it up and read the data sheet and figure out what the specs are and whether that works for you or not. So if you're not prepared to do that kind of research, you might want to stay away. Yeah. And then the other interesting thing is that Toshiba actually competes in a roundabout way in the NAND like flash space for SSDs. Mm -hmm. They own, I think, 40-something percent of Keoxia. Although SK Hynix owns another percent of it via Bain Capital. And uh, so the merger that's currently in progress between Western Digital and Keoxia is likely to be scuttled by SK Hynix being like, no, our second and third biggest competitor cannot merge. It's going to be interesting days in the NAND market in the next couple of months to see how that all shakes out. I think at this point, I'm ready to just say no to anybody wanting to merge. Just no, no, figure something different out. We're, we've tried that lots and it always sucks. No. This is how we end up with only three hard drive manufacturers. <laughs> because Western Digital went and swallowed Hitachi. 
and SanDisk, and so on and so on. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Collide. If you work in security or IT and your company has Okta, this message is for you. Have you noticed that for the past few years, the majority of data breaches and hacks you read about have something in common? It's employees. Hackers absolutely love exploiting vulnerable employee devices and credentials, but it doesn't have to be this way. Imagine a world where only secure devices can access your cloud apps. In this world, phished credentials are useless to hackers, and you can manage every OS, even Linux, from a single dashboard. Best of all, you can get employees to fix their own device security issues without creating more work for IT. The good news is, you don't have to imagine this world. You can just start using Collide. Collide is a device trust solution for companies with Okta, and it ensures that if a device isn't trusted and secure, it can't log into your cloud apps. So support the show and visit collide.com slash 25A to watch a demo and see how it works. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash 25A. Let's do some free consulting then. But first, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to join those people, you can go to 2.5admins.com slash support. And remember that for various amounts on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed of either just this show or all the shows in the Late Night Linux family. And if you want to send in your questions for Jim and Alan or your feedback, you can email show at 2.5admins.com. Jay says, I recently bought a specialized Globe ST Hall e-bike. It's a dream to ride, but I don't like that it needs an Android app that wants access to far too many things. What's worse, I discovered that the Bluetooth on the bike stays on constantly, and you can pair any Android device to it. I paired it with my laptop despite it already being paired to my phone. I contacted Specialized and expressed my concerns, including that anyone could pair with my bike whenever they pleased. And they acknowledged that, but they said they couldn't do anything. Am I crazy for being this triggered about leaving the Bluetooth on all of the time while I'm riding around? No. No, you absolutely are not crazy. And you absolutely (laughs) should keep bothering Specialized about it and uh, probably complaining about it widely on social media, you name it, until eventually they decide that, okay, this does seem like enough of a problem that we ought to fix it. Part of the issue here is that there are essentially two different types of e-bike companies. There are the e-bike companies that started out from the E side, and they're the ones that started out from the bike side and bolted the E on later. Now, these both have exactly the drawbacks that you'd imagine. The ones that start out as tech bro companies, they tend not to build the best actual bicycles. But the bicycle companies tend to be a little slower to get all the way into the modern age as far as their electronics go. And Specialized is very much a bicycle company. All of the part of the e-bike that involves riding is dialed in and great on these bicycles. But yeah, the, the control is super primitive and to my eye certainly looks super obviously inexpensively contracted to offshore bidders. Which also presents the problem that, you know, it makes it more difficult for a company that has outsourced an Android app and an an iOS app to interface with their device to somebody else. It makes it a lot more difficult for them to go in and fix things that maybe they didn't do right the first time because it's not like they can just walk down the hall and talk to their own dev team. Yeah, uh, I think maybe one way to try to get the conversation going in a more useful direction when talking to them is I put a couple links in the show notes here for companies that make systems for monitoring traffic by watching the Bluetooth devices that go past. So because when Bluetooth is on, it broadcasts its MAC address, basically, to try to pair with things, companies have developed things that sit at the side of the road and count how many cars went by by just seeing how many unique 
MAC addresses went by and using that to tell when it's the same car coming back later in the day in the other direction and so on. And it's been very useful for, you know, highway design and so on. But the fact that some piece of technology at the side of the road is keeping track of how many times you drive by is maybe not what you want. And maybe that will help make the case rather than, oh, I just don't like that the Bluetooth is on. You're saying, here's a concrete reason why the Bluetooth shouldn't be beaconing all the time. And it just adds insult to injury that, you know, the devices that are doing the tracking or the whatever, in addition to just seeing the MAC address, they can literally pair with it and pull data or even (laughs) reconfigure things if they want to. That's just nuts. Well, and that's the other thing. It's like most Bluetooth devices, like if you try to connect your Bluetooth to the entertainment system in a car, there's a part on both devices so that just a random device walking by can't pair with the device unless they can read a number off the screen or press a button on the bike at the same time or something. And it seems like that's how it should work, that the bike will only pair with the device when it's expecting a device to pair with it. Like you press the button on the bike saying, for the next 10 seconds, I'm going to try to get my phone to pair with you. And that's the only time you should be accepting pairings. Although that'd be really annoying if it dropped the pairing while you were riding around because you stopped at a light and weren't generating electricity or something. And then you're trying to repair your phone later. And it, you know, it's like, no, you have to be stopped still and press the button and wait 10 seconds or whatever. But security is always a, a trade off between convenience and usability. That scanning of the Bluetooth devices and MAC addresses and everything reminds me of a controversy years and years ago when Google would send its Street View cars around and collect SSIDs of Wi-Fi networks and then would use those in Google Maps, probably still does, to help triangulate your location. You're certainly right that that caused a lot of controversy, but that was that was always one of those. I was like, man, uh, that is not a hill I'm dying on. If you want to know the, the SSID name of my Wi-Fi network, I'll just tell you. It's Jimbo's World. <laughs> Mine's Garrick's Tailor Shop. Mine is Virus Alert. <laughs> the best Wi-Fi name I've ever seen. I still don't know which neighbor it was, but for about a year and a half, one of my neighbors was every day I'm buffering. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, we did see in the past governments subpoenaing records of devices. Like, we want to know the MAC address of all the devices that were at this protest or in this area on this date. And the fact that that could mean somebody hands over the evidence that your bike was on this street on this day may not be something you want them to be able to do so easily. Yeah, and depending on where you live and what the political climate is, that could be a very serious problem. Yeah, you could get disappeared for having been on the wrong street on the wrong day. Mm. So they really should sort this out, man. It shouldn't be the fact that I'm just concerned about privacy isn't enough to get them to do something about it, but maybe specific cases of companies exploiting the MAC addresses to do things or bad things happening to people because of it are the cases that maybe will get the companies to take it more seriously. Or specific evidence that enough of their potential future customers very much care about that, that they ought to address it. I gotta be honest, I think that's usually more effective than technical demonstration of this is a real problem because You're describing a problem to the consumer as opposed to a problem to the bottom line. And guess which one motivates most companies a lot faster and harder? Right, well, we better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send in your questions or your feedback. You can find me at joerest.com slash mastodon. You can find me at jrs-s.net slash social. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.